I'm John Ellis. And I'm Rebecca Darst. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, it's the News Items Podcast. Every Monday through Thursday afternoon, we bring you news items from three major storylines disrupting modern life, a world in disarray, the financialization of everything, and advances in science and technology. And sometimes, like today, for instance, we talk politics. We have three short news items before the break, and then we'll dive into a longer discussion about Georgia. Okay, first up, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wants a minimum corporate tax rate that would apply to the entire world. That would certainly close a big loophole, but is it really doable? Then, Russia tests the Biden administration with increased troop presence and open fire at the Ukrainian border. Third, how does a guy lose $8 billion in 10 days? We look at the case of Bill Huang of Archegos Capital Management and why he should have quit while he was very much ahead. Then, as we mentioned, we'll get to Georgia. And as usual, we'll close with important headlines from the world of science and tech. All right, let's get to the news items. First, in our financialization of everything storyline... Joe Biden is going big with a $2.3 trillion infrastructure proposal. But as his critics will ask, how is he going to pay for it? Yesterday, his Treasury Secretary gave part of the answer. Janet Yellen argued for a global minimum corporate tax rate. That could cut the incentive for American corporations to move to countries that have lower taxes, like when Apple decamped to Ireland. The thinking goes that a global tax would close that loophole. Rebecca, where are we on this? Well, this is the time to do it. As you know, the Biden administration is hoping to boost the corporate tax rate here in the U.S. from 21% to 28% to pay for his infrastructure plan. The obvious rejoinder is that the reaction of U.S. companies would be simply to move operations abroad. Janet Yellen is on board with making that less attractive for them to do that. So in order to have a global minimum corporate tax, right? Mm -hmm. You need all of the countries of the world, in theory, to be on board. Yes. Is that is that realistic, or are you just looking at the EU wants to do it and certain other countries in South Asia want to do it? Is that not, I'm not quite sure how a global tax works. Yeah, I don't know what the enforcement mechanism would be, whether this would be some kind of like climate convention for corporate tax where you know individuals sign an intent and then it's never – put into practice or it becomes a you know political football that's then you know kicked back and forth. What I think was very interesting is that Biden in presenting his his infrastructure plan two times singled out Amazon in particular being among the large number of US companies that have exploited tax loopholes so that they pay very little tax here in the US. There's two issues here. I mean, one is the increase in the corporate tax and whether Biden can really push that through because there is some pushback coming from within his own party. I and mean, West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin has opposed a 28% tax level for uh, U.S. companies. I think I think he might be on board with 25%, but he did tell CNN that he and six or seven other Democrats feel similarly that 28% is too high. And then there's the issue of this global corporate minimum tax, which is an intriguing idea. One thing we do know is that, you know, virtually every country in the world needs the tax revenue. So there's there's certainly momentum on the side of, you know, let's all get together and whack a tax on uh, multinational corporations. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because I think this is a it has elevated a conversation that has been percolating for a number of years, right? I think Yellen used the term 
race to the bottom in corporate tax rates, that this is, and that this is a real issue. This is a real problem for countries in the world. I mean, we're at a, we're at a point in time where countries need to be able to finance recovery. And I have no other wisdom to share on this subject. I say, Jeff, put your money where your mouth is and pay up, you know? <laughs> All right. Now let's move on to our world in disarray storyline. Russia is encroaching on Ukraine. Yet again. Again. The New York Times reports on one official's estimate that the Kremlin has sent perhaps 4,000 extra troops to the border where artillery and gunfire has grown more frequent. State Department spokesperson Ned Price yesterday called on Russia to explain what it called provocations. The United States uh, would certainly be concerned um, by any effort on the part of Moscow, whether it is within Russian territory uh, or within sovereign Ukraine, to intimidate um, uh, our partner, uh, Ukraine. John, as Foreign Policy magazine recently put it, there's likely one intended audience member for Russia's aggression, and it's Joe Biden. I'm reminded of Alexander Haig, who was Richard Nixon's chief of staff. Mm-hmm. Haig said the thing about being the president of the United States is that every problem in the world lands on your desk. And at the moment, big problems are landing on Joe Biden's desk from far, far afield. Obviously, Russian amping up the aggression in Ukraine is one of them. Mm-hmm. I think it's all part of um, a push by countries like Russia, China, and especially the Taliban, to test the mettle of the Biden administration. And he's inherited uh, a very, very difficult environment, and one wishes him the best of luck. So as I understand, Joe Biden had his first call with Ukrainian President Zelensky. He's had that 50-minute call in recent days. This is the first time U.S. and Ukrainian leaders have spoken since Trump's infamous July 2019 call with President Zelensky that sparked the first impeachment investigation against him. Is it possible that Putin is maybe just a little jealous of that phone call that happened between Biden and Zelensky? (laughs) (laughs) He felt left out. It's hard to read, (laughs) Vlad. So I'm not sure we know. In uh, that article from Foreign Policy that you linked to in News Items, a security expert was quoted as saying that in the understanding of the Russian military, the West is waging, quote unquote, hybrid war against Russia on multiple fronts. And this includes specific geographic locations like Ukraine, as well as on issues like Alexei Navalny. These are all of a piece as far as the Russian military is concerned. I think another analyst quoted in the same piece said that the Kremlin likes to keep multiple conflicts on a low simmer so they can turn up the heat when they need to. In business, this is called multi-market interaction. <laughs> in the Kremlin, it's called business as usual under Vladimir Putin. <laughs> yeah, having a lot of things on simmer is sort of standard operating procedure for Putin, right? I mean, mm-hmm. from his perspective, it's about holding power and keeping power. And there are a lot of pieces that that make that work. The big thing that's been going on in Russia is that his political support at home has been declining. Mm -hmm. And so one way that he responds to that is to engage the nation in foreign adventures. Crimea was a major boon to his, quote, Mm -hmm. approval rating, end quote. And other adventures, he thinks, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. will keep his approval rating from not going any further down. So bearing that in mind, how fragile is the current situation in Ukraine? 
It's always fragile because the littlest thing can quickly become a big thing. And, you know, the larger point is that China, Russia, and the Taliban view America as a declining power. Mm-hmm. And so their willingness to go the extra mile, so to speak, is greater than it has been in the past. That is a sobering thought, John. So let's move from world in disarray to someone's portfolio in disarray in the financialization of everything storyline. I know you've been following Archegos Capital Management and news items. The story of Archegos Capital Management's collapse is truly HBO worthy. Matt Levine had a fantastic piece in Bloomberg about it yesterday. And the thing I loved about Matt Levine's piece is that he breaks down an incredibly bitchy Wall Street vignette, okay? So he talks about if this were day trading, what Wang was doing would be called wash trading, which is to say trading with yourself. He had a lot of money to begin with. He borrowed a bunch more. He bought a small handful of stocks, but in large size. So he cornered the market and pushed up their prices, which in theory should have given him less leverage and more equity. But instead, he used that equity to borrow more money and plow it back into the same stocks. And then he did it over and over again. That only works as long as stocks go up. But if stocks go down, you are wiped out. So one of the small number of stocks that Huang was invested in was Viacom. Viacom decided to take advantage of its healthy stock growth, which was being fueled you know, artificially by Huang, to issue new shares. When a company issues new shares, that adds supply to the market and it pushes the price down. So Viacom dropped 23% amid its secondary offering, and that triggered the margin call against Huang. So according to Matt Levine, even though that seems like an over-leveraged, dangerous situation that no prime broker could be involved in, some might if they thought they could get out first. There were two who thought they could get out first, and that was Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. So the companies that were selling blocks of stock on March 26th, two Fridays ago, it was Goldman and Morgan Stanley, sort of in defiance of Credit Suisse who wanted an orderly, coordinated unwind. But the thing here is that not only were Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley Huang's prime brokers, according to CNBC, they led the Viacom CBS secondary. Can you believe that? How great is that? <laughs> I know, right? I mean, that's like, that's incredible. Like that they, is spectacular. No honor among thieves. That's I what I say. say uh, so. Okay, so. That to me was like the takeaway here was that this is like backstabbing of the kind that only Wall Street can do. Like, yeah. There's I definitely a, a HBO documentary or something on this. Right? Limited run series. One thing that interested me about this was that the size of family offices, the yes. assets under management and family offices, was nearly twice that of the assets under management at hedge funds. I had yes. no idea that it had gotten that big. They sort of benefit from a regulatory exemption because these entities are managing the money of just one family. So they sort of fly under the radar as these semi-private domestic investment vehicles. But, right. you know, when you're dealing in those sums, I mean, it's no joke. And of course, so Bill Huang was able to leverage in these stocks was by using total return swaps. So he didn't actually own the underlying stock. He owned an option-like derivative that allowed him to participate in the movement of the stock without actually owning it, which was why his ownership didn't appear on any 13F filings or anything like that. So that sort of amped up the price action in this. It's astonishing that it got to this. 
I suppose every Wall Street meltdown comes down to one simple reminder, which is that, you know, stocks can go down as well as up. (laughs) And if you've staked billions of dollars on a trading strategy that pays out, but only pays out when stocks go higher, I mean, that's, yeah. You think we can get Bill Wang for the podcast? I think maybe in a year or two, he'll come on. Yeah, we'll be real nice. It's okay. All right. (laughs) Total softball. Well, thanks. For that, Rebecca, (laughs) we can talk about this forever, Mm -hmm. but right now we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. And then we'll talk about Georgia. Welcome back to News Items. John, for our long talker today, we have the highly controversial voting law in Georgia. The Washington Post broke down the law's consequences for voters there, and I recommend that anyone who's interested give that article a read. Recently, corporations like Coca-Cola and Nike have criticized the law. And Major League Baseball has moved its all-star game from Atlanta to Denver in protest. Of course, Republicans have hit them right back. Mitch McConnell accused these companies of acting like a, quote, woke parallel government, end quote. There's a lot to talk about here, but I want to point out that to me, the most important aspect of this story is that the law makes it so that an unelected official, the chair of the state elections board, could potentially overturn an election. So, John, give us some context in order to kick this conversation off. It's a doozy. You know, the Republicans are used to winning presidential races in Georgia fairly comfortably. The last time they lost presidential race was in 92, and Clinton won it with 43% of the vote. But, you know, generally it's been a safe Republican seat, and they've been winning Senate elections there since, uh, I think, since 1996. So, lo and behold, the election takes place. They lose the presidential race in November of 2020, and then they lose both U.S. Senate runoff elections. And in Georgia, the thing that really stood out came from the Fox News voter analysis of the Senate runoff elections. And I'm going to read what it said. Half of Georgia Republican Senate voters reported that they'd been contacted by the Republican campaign. Roughly three-quarters of Democratic voters said they had been contacted by the campaigns. Many more Democrats took advantage of the direct contact by the campaigns than Republicans. Among Democratic voters, almost half said they'd made a pledge to the campaign to vote for the candidate. One-fifth received direct help in registering or making a plan to vote, and over one in ten actually donated money to the campaigns. Republican efforts were far less effective. Three in 10 Republican voters said they'd made a pledge. Less than one in 10 received help in making a plan to vote, and less than one in 10 donated money. Since they lost by, you know, very slim margins, the fact that the Democrats were better organized, turned out more of their vote, created a sense of panic, I think, uh, in the party. And thus, this legislation, which, if nothing else, makes it less convenient and in some ways less comfortable for Democratic constituencies to vote. Well, it's kind of a sour retaliation against the superior organization of Democratic get-out-the-vote efforts in 2020. It sounds like Republicans were caught wrong-footed, taking popular support in Georgia for granted. The Democrats say that it's Jim Crow revisited, which is not true. Uh, Republicans say, actually, it expands voter access, which is equally not true. 
the truth of the matter is that for democratic constituencies, particularly in minority communities, it is less convenient and perhaps more uncomfortable if mm-hmm. the weather's bad to vote. And, you know, there are fewer access points and so on and so forth. There is a racially appalling history in Georgia. There have been attempts many times throughout its history to prevent African-Americans from voting in Georgia, right? right? Historically, obviously, uh, suppression of black vote, indeed, the denial of the right to vote is Georgia's history. What's unusual about this election is that the most effective organization probably in the country was the organization run by Stacey Abrams and a cadre of field organizers, most of whom were black. And the reaction to that from Governor Kemp and others was, oh, my God, we might lose elections. What can we do? What can we get away with that will make the Abrams organization a little less effective? So here's a question for you, John. If you look at the list of ways that the Georgia law limits voting, the shorter time period to request mail-in ballots, new voter ID requirements, the uh, replacing the signature matchup procedure that was previously used, the shortened early voting period in runoffs, etc. Is it possible that Georgia's Democratic vote turnout efforts are so good that those measures will actually not prevent them from getting their voters out because they are so cleverly organized? I think actually this bill helps them. In, in what um, sense? In that it galvanizes them because they can see what... that it galvanizes. They're trying to take away your right to vote. And I think so it's a very strong yeah. message. And I think it will really help with turnout. I think the Republicans tactically yeah. are making an incredibly stupid move. Because yeah. what they're doing is, <laughs> is saying to a really significant block of voters, we want to shut you out. And yeah. the surest way to get people to go to the polls is to tell them that they can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first rule of politics is it's not the action, it's the reaction. Mm-hmm. The action is going to create a reaction that I think in the end will benefit the Democrats. No, I mean, I think that focusing on the ability of unelected officials in Georgia to overturn an election is the thing people should focus on. Right. Uh, Nate Cohen had a very good piece about it in, in today's New York Times. It makes it possible to reverse the outcome of an election. That's dangerous. Yeah. But when you think back, of course, Trump called the Secretary of State of Georgia and said that he wanted him to go out and, quote, find, end quote, 11,000 votes that Mm -hmm. would then make Donald Trump the winner of the presidential race in Georgia by, I guess, a vote or two. Mm -hmm. Um, The Secretary of State declined to do so. Mm-hmm. But had the Secretary of State been someone of less principle, let's say, <laughs> yeah. he or she might have done that. He <laughs> or she might have gone out and found those votes. And under this law, mm-hmm. the possibility of that happening is greatly increased. And if that were to happen, it would be enormously damaging to the democratic experiment here in the United States. Do you think that other states will be emboldened to pursue similar measures? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Texas, Texas. Texas makes Georgia look like a walk in the park. And I guess there are 18 states where laws similar to this are being passed. Yep. Some of them, 
you know, voting access was increased because of the pandemic. Yeah. So if you went back to the way it was, that's not any great crime. But this business of enabling the overturn of an election is really, truly troubling. Yeah. And now for our science and tech headlines. First, the New York Times reports that an entirely new kind of vaccine is entering clinical trials in countries including Brazil and Vietnam. If successful, this vaccine could be mass-produced via chicken eggs, the same way flu vaccines are made. The trials will take months, but the vaccine itself could be a boon for countries that have yet to inoculate many of their citizens. This is in part because of the huge difficulty involved in manufacturing current vaccines in purpose-built factories. But it could be worth it. John, what's your take? It's great news. Obviously, we have to wait to see what the trials reveal. But if you were, you know, able to produce more of it uh, more quickly, it'll make a huge difference. I would say this is one of the best good news stories of the week, if not the month. Yes, indeed. So there has been this global effort, COVAX. This could uh, really take things up a notch. Next. We may age just one day at a time, but research suggests that human biology doesn't work so smoothly. Protein levels traveling in the bloodstream draw a pretty good picture of one's health status. Research published in Nature Medicine in 2019 found that a combination of 373 proteins could accurately predict someone's age, and the authors showed that these levels go through three big shifts at the ages of 34, 60, and 78. The researchers added that clinical applications are a few years off, but until then, this gives us a better understanding of the aging process itself. And this is bad, bad news because I'm heading toward shift number three. I would much prefer where you are, Rebecca. I anxiously, you know, I anxiously await the day when News Items reports that 78 is the new 34. Yes, indeed. That day is close at hand, I trust. (laughs) We did put this in even though it was an older item because Mm -hmm. anything having to do with slowing down the aging process is, of course, a huge matter of interest to news items. For more insights on breakthroughs in reversing the aging process, you got to go to news items and subscribe. People should Google news items substack John Ellis and go for the premium subscription where you get the really good stuff. Indeed. Thank you for the plug. (laughs) I will plug your site as well. It's called investableuniverse.com. And anyone who's interested in the global market of things should go there ASAP. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with more of the news from our three major storylines, the financialization of everything, a world in disarray, and advances in science and technology. See you then.